Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. We are in week three of a sermon series focused on this theme of time. It's high time to wake up, focused on putting on the armor of light. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's high time to fill up because uh, we need to be focused on being filled with the Spirit and to be able to walk in that light. It's high time. Perhaps you think of a, a literal definition of the hour and minute of a given moment. This morning, many of us uh, were mindful of that time change and enjoyed it, even though our smartphones and and other technological devices, even some alarm clocks are programmed to to change the time automatically while we're sleeping and we don't even have to worry or wonder about it. For for me, uh, in in my case, it still causes a little bit of anxiety, especially when you're the one preaching uh, on Sunday morning. And so what I always do when the time change comes twice a year as I set my watch uh, next to my, uh, on my nightstand, next to my phone, next to my alarm clock, so that when I wake up in the morning, I can verify that the time has in fact changed uh, and that it's either the hour before or the hour later, uh, whichever it is, and, and, and I have that peace of mind uh, to know. And you're like, what's his problem? Well, I assure you there are many. Um, some of you are just like, I'm glad I got an extra hour of sleep. I'm good with the time change. In life, there are always going to be those, those moments of, of time that are priorities to be concerned about, things that are important, work, games, our, our kids' games, uh, ballet rehearsals, doctor's appointments, interviews. But we often make those a priority and, and are focused on arriving on time and, and being on time. Why don't we take the time to prioritize and do what is really important? What is eternally important? Why don't we do what the Bible says is important? Indeed, from God's word uh, today, I believe there's a very specific way that God is calling us to view time today. As the song Pastor Scott uh, so beautifully uh, wrote and, and we opened with this morning, we need to get ready. We need to awake and be ready. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 12 says, do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Today, we are gonna be talking about a very specific armor, the armor of God. Church, it's high time to suit up in the armor of God. Let's get ready for battle, shall we? Please stand for the reading of God's word as we turn to Ephesians chapter six, the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, 
having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. As Paul wraps up his letter to the Ephesians, we need to understand uh, that this is not an afterthought. While urging us to be armed and ready for the struggle that the uh, that we're going to have in the Christian life, in our Christian living. Looking back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we see Paul begin the challenge to the church that he concludes here uh, with saying, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. When we walk worthy of our calling, church, we are inevitably going to wrestle against various forms of opposition and attack because the enemy doesn't want us walking according to our calling that God has given us. Last week, Pastor Matthew uh, took us to Ephesians chapter five where we saw the contrast of darkness and light and the call to walk in the light. Verse 15 says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. I love that verse, making the most of your time. I often take it out of context, but I love it uh, because of the challenge uh, that it gives us uh, to, to stand firm and make, makes us aware that the, the life we're living, there's a battle that we need to be ready for. As believers in Christ, we know we face three types of enemies in this battle, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians chapter two, verse one through three says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the, uh, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world refers to the system around us that is opposed to God. And we know uh, that we certainly live in a world where there's all kinds of systems that are against the things of God. Then there's the flesh. That's the old nature. That is, that is us, the sin that we have that we inherited from, from Adam's sin. And then there's the devil, Satan, the liar, the adversary, and the thief waiting to devour but we know in Christ and Christ alone, we can have victory over all three of those, all of this. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. In other words, as believers, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Amen? For us today, the biggest takeaway from the Armor of God passage is to comprehend our spiritual battle and how we will be ready for it. For us today, uh, we need to understand how to put on the armor of God and what uh, the armor of God means, what it is and what it isn't. Listen closely. This is in your uh, worship guide. It's on the screen. You can follow along as I say this. We must understand that an underlying call of the Christian life is to undertake the battles we face with the knowledge we are already under a victory 
and strategically and spiritually must undergo putting on the armor of God so that we never underestimate the power of the enemy nor find ourselves unprepared to meet the struggles of life. In this, we find ourselves firmly under the authority and protection of Christ where the enemy cannot undo us. To do that, to accomplish all of that, we need to suit up to stand with strength. Suit up to stand with strength. When we look at the verse in this passage, uh, it literally begins with finality. Paul says, finally. Paul is speaking to us as the church here and giving a conclusion to what he has spent the preceding five chapters carefully establishing our place in Jesus and the basics of, of our Christian walk. For Paul to write, finally, he is referring to all that he has previously said earlier in the letter on the themes of our light, our glorious standing, God's divine plan, the conduct we are called to walk in, and the filling of the Spirit. In light of all of this, there's a battle to fight in the Christian life. Life in our fallen world is a battle. The struggle is pictured as a hand-to-hand combat. It's personal. It's in our face. It's not something, it's not a battle that is far off, that is easy to ignore or pretend doesn't exist. We deal with things each and every day that are a battle. What is distinctive here is that the battle is seen as not being between people, but between believers and spiritual forces. To survive, one must be prepared for this battle and engage with it at the level that it is being fought. That means drawing on the spiritual provisions God has given and not being focused on the circumstances of the battle itself. This text, I think, is really one of the most explicit culture war texts uh, that we have in the New Testament epistles. It defines the battle in ways, though, that are distinct and different from most of the ways the church engages in that battle today. To do this, to engage properly in the battle, there's three things that Paul kind of outlines first. The first is be aware of the source of the strength. Verse 10, we need the Lord's strength. We cannot look in the wrong place for strength. We can't afford that mistake. We don't have time. Uh, to look in the wrong places for strength. In verse 10, the present tense imperative, be strong, suggests an ongoing process. We must continually be being strong, meaning we need to keep on doing it. We must be aware of the source of the strength that comes from God and his mighty power. The adjective mighty emphasizes the supremacy of God's power. Nothing can defeat it. Nothing can overcome it. This echoes what Paul said in Ephesians chapter one, verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of his might. Might is inherent power or force. A muscular man's big muscles, kind of like mine, display his might, even if he doesn't use them. It is the reserve of strength. James, why are you laughing? Power is the exercise of might. Power is the exercise of might. When the muscular man uses his might to be an iron bar, to bend an iron bar, he uses his power. It means that the reserve of his strength is put into effect. God has vast reservoirs, 
vast reservoirs of might that can be received as power in our Christian life. But we need to understand. We need to understand here that his might does not work in me as I sit passively. His might works in me as I rely on it and step out and do the work of living the Christian life out. I can rely on his power and do nothing. I can live without relying on it. But both of these scenarios fall short. I must rely on his might and do the work uh, that he has called me to. Paul proclaims the strength of God's might and power in Romans chapter 8, verse 37 through 39. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. To be strong is reminiscent of, the Old Test- of Joshua in the Old Testament who said, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. And King David in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, where it is said that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This strength, even though it comes from God, from outside and beyond ourselves, it is to be actively lived out. This reality leads into the next verse where we must be alert in the schemes of Satan, verse 11. We do this with readiness by putting on and wearing the full armor of God. Put on is the same verb found in chapter four, verse 24, which says, and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. God gives the believer a full outfit of equipment and he places us into battle with everything we need at our daily disposal. This armor is both of God as it is from him and also it is his actual armor. In the Old Testament, it is the Lord who wears the armor, as we see in the reference connection Paul is making from Isaiah 59, verse 17, which we'll look at more in just a moment. God shares that armor with us. Equipped with God's armor is how we are more than conquerors. For what are we wearing this armor? Not to look good or look bold or bad angel, but as protection against the schemes of Satan. Satan is the devil, diabolos, slanderer, the great adversary. In Ephesians chapter two, verse two, Paul identifies him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are in disobedience. Throughout Ephesians chapter four, Paul describes Satan as crafty, subtle, and devious. He's got tricks and schemes. The enemy tries to gain a foothold in our life in endless ways. The ways we once walked in before God made us alive in Christ. Satan can make these things look attractive and desirable, distorting the truth and camouflaging the evil. Thus, we need to, number three, be attentive to the scope of spiritual forces, verse 12. We have a struggle with spiritual forces. 
the enemy would deceive us into believing that the conflict with evil is with other people, that people are the enemy. This is one of the easiest and quickest lies Christians believe. We end up railing against the very ones who need to hear the hope that we have. When we do this, the enemy just sits back and laughs at his job well done. The word translated struggle occurs uniquely here in the New Testament, and it refers to this idea of, of wrestling. Paul reminds us here that the Christian struggle is not only against Satan himself, but also against a host of demonic influences and adversaries who, like the devil, are not flesh and blood, not people. Our greatest enemy is not the world we see, corrupt and wicked as it is, but the world we cannot see. Paul describes a, a list of types and ranks to, to explain the scope and depth of the spiritual warfare we face. He doesn't go into great detail of explaining how they manifest and what they are and where they are and, and, and all that, but he does not explain uh, to that level. What he does say is that the rulers, the forces of darkness and wickedness all speak to the spiritual realm, not a person or a type of people. It is easy for some to disregard this. It makes things so much simpler to focus on an enemy that we can see, that we can fight, that we can point fingers at and accuse. Though we might, and we do, have conflicts with human beings, earthly institutions, governments, politicians, the media, school boards, different agendas, behind them are a myriad of spiritual forces we must keep in mind. Dealing with demons and evil influences in one's Christian life is not a matter of finding a technique or a particular strategy uh, of our own because, quite simply, we don't possess the ability or the wisdom to do so. But we must be committed to spiritual means that God gives us through our relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, and his power and work in us. James gives only one formula for deliverance for demons or the devil himself. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. There is no believer that cannot deal with Satan on the terms of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, in which he knows as a follower of the, and believer in Jesus. Remember Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 through 13 from the summer, uh, the summer sermon series that we did, Always, Always Christ. Paul prayed for the Colossians that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. On the other hand, it is also dangerous to, to be presumptuous in thinking we are free from any danger, as 1 Corinthians 10, 12 warns. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. It is recognition of our weakness that makes us strong. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 through 10 reminds us, a lone guard who sees the, the enemy approaching off in the distance does not turn around and, and start fighting. He doesn't go out and, and charge them. 
He reports the attack to his commanding officer, who then organizes the defense. When Satan attacks and the forces of evil assail, we cannot do battle on our own and do it alone. We are to put on God's armor and report to him, perfectly confident in the knowledge of 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Colossians 2, verse 15 tells us that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers at the cross. Therefore, our victory is rooted in what Jesus did for us, not in what we do. Remember, however, it isn't that there is no doing on our part, but our doing is the appropriation and application of what Jesus did. Jesus promised that the very gates of hell shall not overpower his church. We are to suit up to stand with strength. And as we do, we are to suit up armed with specific gear. Verse 13 serves as both a transitional statement and an introduction to the armor we are to put on. The first thing we are to do before we are even to put anything on is to be able to stand. Paul spends some considerable time in verse 13 uh, unpacking this idea of standing. Paul describes the purpose of the strength of God and the armor of God, what we are to use them for. And it is not to take up arms and fight as the world would think. Satan is going to look for that unguarded area where he can get a beachhead. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27 exhorts us not to give him the opportunity. Within this verse is two meanings for our word stand. The first means to stand against or stand your ground. It gives the picture of standing firm in the face of an attack. The second is, is the basic Greek word for stand to differentiate our position from sitting or lying down or laying back or leaning on something we are to stand physically. This suggests to many upon first pass that Christians should adopt only a defensive position, a defensive posture, and a turn-the-other-cheek response to attack. After all, verse 13 does not say, stand when attack and hit back. Some of us would, would like to. But as we will see, standing in the face of evil means more than merely withstanding the onslaught of evil in our comfy little position and while also not contradicting Jesus, who tells us how to react when offended or attacked. Nowhere, nowhere in this verse or in this passage is there instruction for the believer to kick the tires and light the fires and go on full attack mode. Nowhere. Sorry to disappoint. The instruction is clear. We are to stand. The Greek word for fight or conflict or attack just isn't there. We will see, however, standing is not a weak posture, but a celebration of victorious offense in battle. Stay with me. God has given us, his people, a call, a mission, a course to fulfill. Satan will do this, do his best to stop it. When he attacks or intimidates, we are to stand. We do the Lord's work, live for the Lord, and stand against every hint of spiritual opposition. Stand, not fight. It's pretty clear. But Pastor Michael, what does this mean? Well, we need to do several things. First, in verse 14, we need to be sound. We need to be sound. Truth needs to be sound, soundly in place in our life. Paul is instructing us to suit up with the belt of truth, to, to gird our waist with truth. Why? 
Well, truth is symbolically represented as a belt which protects our abdomen and gathers up our garments so the rest of the armor can fall and fit into place. When a soldier would sit down, relaxed, he would loosen or, or even take off his belt. Putting on the belt prepares us to be ready. Warren Wearsby explains, just as the belt holds the other parts of the armor together and the garments in, truth is the integrating force in life of the victorious Christian. When we know that we are in Christ, when we know the power and authority of God, we can face the enemy. We can face the enemy without fear. One other note here, which we'll get to more in a minute, is that the belt holds the sword. Unless we practice the truth, we are not wearing it uh, in a way that surrounds ourselves, And we cannot use the sword appropriately and effectively the way that it's meant to. We will not be soft, but we will be sound of mind with the belt of truth securely fastened. The second thing is to be secure. We will be secure in our walk by wearing the breastplate of righteousness. This will prevent us from being susceptible to the things that would lead us astray. For the Roman soldier, the breastplate covered the chest to protect it against assaults and arrows. Paul draws this image from Isaiah 59, verse 17, where Yahweh puts on the righteousness like a breastplate. Once again, we are to put on a virtue not of our own, but that God gives through his son, Jesus Christ. The armor of righteousness here does not refer to our imputed righteousness, our standing before God uh, when we are saved. We never have to put that on, that righteousness on, because Christ has already given it to us permanently. Rather, this piece of armor refers to practical righteousness, the right living we should have in Christ. Satan is an accuser, but he cannot accuse the believer who is living a godly life in the power of the Spirit. The life we live either fortifies us against Satan's attacks or makes it easier for him to defeat us. When Satan accuses the Christian, it is the righteousness of Christ that assures the believer of their salvation. But our positional righteousness in Christ without daily practical righteous living only gives Satan opportunity to attack us. We are to put on the breastplate of righteousness to be secure, not susceptible we are to be swift and sure. Verse 15, we need our feet fitted with the gospel of peace so as not to be clumsy or contradicting the gospel of peace. Something to know about me, uh, I like shoes. Probably too much. They need to match. They need to coordinate with what I'm wearing. Shoes need to fit right, be right, look right, uh, and be for the right occasion, right? Some of you are tracking with me. I see a few nods, yes. And some of you have no clue what I'm talking about because you could barely find your shoes this morning. <laughs> What's on our feet is that Paul is describing is extremely important and specific. Soldiers must also have the right kind of footwear, which is what Paul is getting at here. As soldiers in God's army, we better have the right footwear on as we stand strong. The verse is quite clear. The gospel of peace is what we are to be prepared with. 
It is interesting to note that Paul does not actually use a word for shoes. That's not so much the emphasis, although implied, but rather an idea that our feet should be ready, fitted with readiness, preparation, readiness, different translations say. In Christ, how we stand and how we walk is mission critical. If we are going to stand and withstand, then we need to be wearing and displaying the peace of the gospel. Why? Because we are ambassadors for Christ. Because we have peace with God that comes from the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We, need, we don't need to fear attack uh, from Satan or men. We must also exercise peace with each other and be prepared to be the beautiful feet of Isaiah 52, verse 7, bringing the good news. In Romans 10, verse 15, as messengers of peace, taking the message of the gospel wherever we go. Do your feet take the message of the gospel wherever they go? Is that how they're prepared? Church, did you put your gospel shoes on today? Or do our feet smell like the gospel? Or do they smell like garbage? Moving on. Verse 16, be shielded. Our shield of faith keeps us from being vulnerable. Now understand, this is no mere Frisbee shield. It is not one of those smaller round shields that you might see in, in Roman history. We are talking about a big, broad shield the size of a door. This is what Paul is picturing when he uses this description. The shield was large and the soldier held it before him. The cool thing uh, is that as it protected him from spears and arrows and fiery darts, this type of shield was not just for personal defense, but it was meant to be joined and locked together with other shields from other soldiers forming one giant shield wall that would help protect the whole group. That's how our shields of faith work within the body of Christ. Our shields connect together with each other, making ourselves stronger. Remember, Paul is talking to the church here, to the church as a group, collectively, as well as the individual. It is our faith joined together that makes us strong. Christians are not in battle alone. The faith mentioned here is similar in nature to the breastplate, is not saving faith. We have that already when we believe in Jesus Christ and do not need to put it on. But it is living faith, a trust in the promise of God. And it is a defensive weapon that protects us from the fiery darts of Satan's attack meant to discourage, distract, divide, and doubt. There, there's a whole military history, uh, an art of war history that I could go into about flaming arrows that, that we just don't have time for, I'm sorry. But a barrage of flaming arrows uh, was, was a scary thing. It was meant to frighten and cause the soldier to turn and run. The shield of faith catches those scary flaming arrows that Satan throws at us and repels them into nothing. That is the picture of being shielded by faith, not being vulnerable. We need to be surrounded, verse 17, the helmet of salvation needs to be surround our head. It needs to surround our head, our mind, so that we are not captured by the plots and platitudes of the enemy. First Thessalonians 5 verse 8 speaks of the helmet of salvation in connection to the hope of salvation. In Narnia, it is not a helmet, but a horn of salvation. Queen Susan's horn that is used to bring saving help uh, whenever it is sounded. 
The helmet of salvation protects us from discouragement, the desire to give up, giving us hope, not only uh, knowing that we are saved, but that we will be saved. It is the assurance that God will triumph. Satan wants to attack our minds, just like he did uh, to defeat Eve in the Garden of Eden. When wearing the helmet, it gives the picture of someone whose mind is controlled by God and the things of God. When God controls our mind, our thoughts, Satan can, cannot uh, lead the believer astray. Our knowledge of God's word, his truth, and righteousness all ties in here. When we forget to harness our helmet and hoist it onto our head, have it into position and, and fasten it securely, we can be captured by the things of this world and the lies of the enemy, rather than being captivated by the good things of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. Lastly, we need to suit up to be strategic. Verse 17b, why did I choose this word for the last piece of the armor? Yes, it begins with S, and yes, it is one of my go-to words, but it's a piece a lot of us get excited about, right? Well, don't get too excited because I'm about to ruin our cultural Christian theology here. The sword of the spirit, what is it? What is it not? The final piece of equipment it is also the most misunderstood. The idea here is that the spirit provides a sword for us and that sword is the word of God. To effectively use the sword of the spirit, we must know it, understand it, and practice with it. To effectively use the sword, we must regard it as God wielding the sword, not us manipulating it with our own ideas. The word sword here that Paul is using is the Greek word for makara, which was the smaller of two blades carried by a Roman soldier. It was not the primary sword of attack. I don't have any Roman weapons, but this is a Celtic scheme. It's light, nimble, maneuverable, and can be concealed. A, a small sword like this was meant to be held under the arm or concealed to where it could be pulled out for defense or offense uh, at, a moment's, at a moment's notice. It was a strategic weapon, but it was a small sword. The Greek word for sword is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew, for the sword God uses as the divine warrior. So the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and all that goes with it enables us to engage in spiritual warfare, not just defensively, but with offense carried out in the right way. Ephesians 6 does not instruct us to fight with the armor we have put on. We aren't to go looking for battle, relying on our ability to use the armor. Rather, we are to put on the armor and take our weapon in order to stand firm. Sometimes that means we will fend off an attack with action. Sometimes we will pull out the sword of the spirit to rebuke and reflect or, and deflect but the picture here is not taking a, a long battle sword and going on a glorious rampage attacking the enemy. We miss the point if we do that. There is another aspect of this verse we need to look at to make the connection clear here. That is the Greek meaning uh, for the word of God. Paul does not use the word logos here, which means written word. 
he uses the word rhema, which means spoken word or saying something. An excellent illustration of this meaning is Jesus rebuking the devil in the wilderness with scripture, the word of God. Word of God in this instance, therefore, does not so much refer to the Bible as a whole, but the power of the gospel message. Rhema refers to teaching or proclaiming outward. The word of God is is not a weapon we take for sword stabbing and thrusting at the enemy and, and often people. Rather, it is a shining, threatening, life-changing symbol of the message of God's word for those who need to hear it, not get slashed over the head with it. Every time God's word is used to lead uh, lead a person to salvation, it gives witness to its power to cut a swath through Satan's dominion of darkness and bring light to a lost soul. That is how it is used offensively as a weapon testifying to his word to those we encounter as the active, offensive use and most powerful weapon which Satan has no defense. There's another type of sword that we often think of. This is a Scottish claymore. It's not real, don't worry, but it might hurt somebody if you get out of line. I wouldn't want to fight with this sword. It's a replica. The pommel and the handle are not weighted. The blade is not balanced. But this is, this is the idea that we have in mind a lot of times. The sword we are given is capable of both defense and offense, but not for outright attack. It is for standing firm in the truth of God's word. It depends on us using it correctly. We need to put down the idea of us carrying around a battle sword and take out the real sword that stings. Finally, Paul gives a concluding summary of how we are to put on the armor of God and most important way to engage in battle. There could be a whole nother message just on um, verse 18 alone, but we are to suit up to pray with power. There are four points about how and why we are to pray as Paul is instructing here. The key to know regarding prayer is that this is how we use the spiritual strength of the armor of God that God gives us. Warren Wiersbe writes that prayer is the energy that enables the Christian soldier to wear the armor and wield the sword. We cannot fight the battle in our own power, no matter how strong or talented we think we are. The battle is the Lord's. The battle belongs to the Lord. We are called to pray. We fight our battles on our knees. We put on the armor of God and stand firm. There's four things. We need to be proactive in prayer. Paul gives us an example here that we are to always, in all ways, be in prayer. We are to be purposeful in prayer. For all the saints, for the body of Christ, lifting each other up as we, as we engage in these battles. We are to have intercessory prayer, praying for one another, for encouragement, for strength, for defense. We are to be productive in prayer. We can imagine Paul in his chains praying for any number of things. But what does he pray for? To be alert, to persevere, to be about the work God has for us no matter what, whether in chains or in a battle. We are to be productive in our prayer. When we pray in these ways, and the battle comes, we will be protected 
in prayer. John Piper calls this our walkie-talkie with a direct link to headquarters. It never fails to get through. Prayer is our wartime communication link to the God who holds the battle in his hands. Prayer is worship. Prayer is work. Prayer is war. Prayer is the way. The way in which we mount our defense, that we stand strong, that we put on the armor of God, that we employ and deploy the various pieces of the armor that he gives us. It's through prayer, warfare prayer, that this happens. To look good, Christian life, we, we think we have the armor of God on, and we try to look good or strong with the armor of God on, but we haven't gone about putting it on in the right way. And oftentimes, we can look kind of silly when we try to put on our own armor, our shields and swords, and, and that is a picture I will never live down from VBS in 2013. <laughs> where I was part of uh, the VBS program in that way and, and not at all fulfilling a dream. <laughs> we can also look very silly and ridiculous when, when we fight uh, and put on armor in such a way. Tyler, if you would join me uh, and demonstrate for us, this is what the enemy thinks of us when, when we try to put on armor ourselves. A pool noodle, sword, yeah, not very strong. Watch it, There's, I've got sword with an arm reach there. And, and a bubble wrap shield and, and breastplate, it's not gonna go very well for us. Thank you, Tyler. Tyler's uh, one of our great leaders in, in our student ministry and, and was willing to humble himself uh, in, in that way and assist me. <clears throat> the armor pieces that were on screen and Tyler in the bubble wrap and pool noodle are not the armor of God. The armor of God is outlined for us in scripture but there's something missing, isn't there? There's an area of the body uh, that Paul doesn't mention, mention any armor. What about the backside? What about our back? There's no armor for that. Well, Paul mentions no equipment for it. I find it interesting that in John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress, he tells that because the character Christian had no armor for his back, the best option was to stand his ground. We are to face forward. We are to face forward always. When we crouch, cower, seek cover, or cave in, that's when we are most vulnerable. The shield and the breastplate and the things that God has, has enabled us to have and equipped us with aren't able to do their jobs when we aren't having that faith and trust in God. Because we are not standing up. We're not suited up with the full armor of God. We are to stand firm, which is why there is no armor for our back. God's mighty power is at our back. He calls us to stand firm, facing forward. Church, it is high time that we stand up with the armor of God. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Lord Jesus, so. Uh, we thank you for your word, which is true and which is our strong defense. Lord, I, I pray for, for every believer uh, in the room right now that knows and trusts in you as Lord and Savior, that they would take time of inventory and evaluate, are they really wearing the armor of God? 
do they put it on daily through prayer? Is there an area of weakness? Is there a battle that is raging in their life that is, that is discouraging, that they're, that they're growing weaker in right now and need to shore up uh, that armor? Lord, that need encouragement. God, I pray that you would uh, touch the, the heart and mind of the believer right now. I pray, Lord, that if, if they have that uh, weakness or that concern or that area of discouragement in their life, that they would seek others to, to pray with them and, and help lift them up. Lord, I pray that if there is someone in the room who is fighting in the wrong way, uh, that is going on the, the attack and, and not standing firm, not having the gospel of peace under their feet as they go, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live out scripture in a real and authentic way, Lord, and put on the full armor of God and everything that it means. God, I pray for the individual that is sitting here today or, or watching online that is, that, that is wondering, well, I know that there's, there's battles and I know there's difficulties, but I don't have this relationship with Jesus. God, I pray that you would work in their heart and their mind right now, helping them to realize their need for a savior. God, I pray that they would confess uh, their sins and profess your name uh, as Lord and Savior, that they might be saved. Lord, I pray that if they're here today, that they would, they would come forward at the end of the service and pray with one of our deacons who can help them take that, that next step in their walk with you. Lord Jesus, we submit ourselves to you. Lord, it is not our strength, but is yours that it helps us fight the battles that we face in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.